Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, welcome everybody. We are in the second Sunday of our first series of the year entitled Original Jesus. And our, our big vision for the year is uh, growing in maturity, uh, maturity in Christ for the sake of the world. And so what we wanted to do at the beginning is to say, what does it mean to be mature? And so we look at the person of Jesus as the truly human one. That Jesus is the perfect man, and we can look at him and how he lives his life, how he interacts with God, how he interacts with other people, and we can take cues from that of what it means for us to grow into maturity. But not just looking at Jesus as an example, but that Jesus walked the life that we did to usher in a pathway towards healing. Because if we're honest, a lot of us need healing in order to continue to grow, to become truly human in the way that God has designed us to be. And so we're going to be looking at a really fascinating passage today, but this is kind of where I want us to go. This is the main point for today. So if you just, if you write down just one thing, this is it, and then you can leave. (laughs) Uh, Knowing where we've come from helps us to become aware of the work God will do in our stories to mature us. When we know where we've come from, we know where we're going. What we're going to be looking at is how, not only how Jesus was aware of where he came from, uh, but that God was actually doing something through Jesus that's redeeming the past in order to give us a vision for the future. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to jump right into this. Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you are with us, and that you are for us. You are not against us. And God, I believe that even this morning, you have gone on ahead of us. You've, you've made straight the path for us to come here. And we are here because on some level, we want to meet you. We want to know you. This is more than a social club. This is more than uh, just getting to sing some songs. This is more than just even learning helpful principles for our lives. This is about us meeting you, encountering you, being transformed by that encounter. So when we go back out, we carry your presence with us and we can participate in your healing of the world. And God, what a high calling that is. So even now, Lord, I speak against any places of fear or distraction that would keep us from, from meeting you here, that would keep us hidden, ashamed, guilty, regretful, anxious, any of these things that hold us back from your presence, we break those things in the strong name of Jesus. We rebuke the lies of the enemy that would tell us that we're not worthy to be here, to be in your presence. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week we looked at this story in Luke uh, that's the only story of Jesus' youth. You know, we have um, the Christmas stories with his birth. And then the rest of the, uh, the other two synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark, and then John, um, all just kind of jump to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So last week we looked at this one little vignette that we have from Luke that gives us some indication. I, and I, I don't know about you, but this past week I've been meditating a lot on this idea that Jesus grew up. 
I think that's a fascinating idea. Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God, and he grew in favor with man. I think that's such an encouragement to all of us that as we've spoken about, maturity is not an arrival point, but maturity is kind of how do we hold that path of growth that we are growing in each of those four arenas. Some of us are growing in stature horizontally instead of vertically, and that's okay. That's part of it. You know, that's living an abundant life, we'll say. So uh, the next story that we find um, in the Gospel of Luke is a story of Jesus' baptism. And perhaps you're familiar with this. Um, It's in Mark. It's in Matthew. It's in Luke. And John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He's probably older than him, about six months. Uh, They grew up together, and John actually begins his own ministry. And he's kind of this wild man. He he lives out in the desert. Um, He eats uh, locusts and honey, which is, you know, really an interesting way to kind of get attention. Um, but he was, a big part of his ministry was baptism. This was, a, this was a symbol in the first century that really had to do with repentance. And what baptism was for the Jews, just like it is for us Christians, it's, it's kind of remembering that path of Israel moving from Egypt to the promised land and walking through the Red Sea from death to life. It's this idea of repentance. It's all kind of bundled into that symbol. And so John is baptizing Jews who hear that call to repentance to come back to God. And what we find is very early on, John's ministry is stirring up this antipathy with the leaders of the day. Those people who it's in their best interest to keep the system the way that it is because it kind of works for them. They can keep people under their thumb and they don't really have any interest in people actually engaging with God and particularly what God is about to do through Jesus. And so John becomes kind of this forerunner for Jesus. He's announcing, he says, like, listen, this is what I do. I baptize for repentance, but somebody's going to come that's the real deal, the Messiah that we have been waiting for. I'm not the answer. I'm just kind of leading the way. I'm the warm-up act um, for, the, for the main thing. And so this is where we're jumping into the story in Luke 3, where Jesus actually comes out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. We're going to make this a little bit interactive. I'm going to read the first part, and then we're going to read the second part together because there's a real power in us reading Scripture out loud. Amen? All right, so I'm going to read this first part, and I'm going to tell you when you're going to jump in. So, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and this Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And everybody stand. We're going to read this next part together. Power of reading public scripture. Ready? And you're going to find this rhythm. One, two, three. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Maphet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, 
the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, halfway, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Mina, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, keep preaching to me, son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphraxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Give yourselves a round of applause. Well done. Well done. Everybody can take a seat. Don't you just feel the power, the power of the scriptures? Somebody uh, a couple years ago in, caught me in the lobby after the church and uh, with, it felt like a very loaded question. They asked me, is this a full gospel church? I said, I don't know what that means, but I think we're trying. <laughs> and I think it means that we preach on passages like this. I think. I'm not sure. If you know what a full gospel church is, talk to me afterwards. Um, there are two uh, lineages given for Jesus. One of them is in Matthew, and one of them is in Luke. In the Matthew one, it's right at the very beginning of the gospel. And in Luke, we find it attached to Jesus' baptism. And I think that Luke is trying to tell us something very interesting here. Now, if you know the, the, the genealogy of Matthew, which I know most of you do, you have that memorized by heart, you might have noticed that it's a different genealogy. There are a lot of different names, and especially from David on, it kind of takes this divergent path. And there's a lot of different theories. We don't exactly know what's going on there. Some people consider that it's the genealogy um, through his kind of adoptive father, Joseph, going through his adopted father, Heli, as opposed to um, what we know from elsewhere. Others think that this might actually be um, Mary's lineage, that this is his mother's line, that Luke was writing um, to a Greek audience, and so they would have traced lineage through, um, through the maternal line. So there's a little bit of a di divergent thought there, and, and it's very fascinating research, and I encourage you to go and to look at that because it's there and it bears dealing with. But I think one of the things that we can particularly note when we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus here or we're looking at it in Matthew is that it's a real mixed bag of characters. And if you know the Old Testament well, you might know a few of those stories. And you know that there were some really wonderful, faithful people. And you know there were some people that were a little bit slippery and people that were kind of back and forth when it came to their relationship with God. And a lot of people that did some pretty egregious things. And Matthew really nails this too in his and so a genealogy was really important for Jews because it gave them a grounding of this is the story of who I am and why I am the way that I am. And so they made a lot of care to really consider where do I come from? Who are my people that have led up to this point? Because our genealogies, our DNA are a story of our family's engagement with God. And so there's two things that we can really surmise from this where we have Jesus' baptism, his affirmation by God, and then secondly, his genealogy. That number one, before Jesus does anything, 
His ministry has not started. He is affirmed by his father at his baptism. That's the first thing. So imagine that. Jesus doesn't do a single thing in order to earn points with his dad. How many of you am already preaching? He doesn't have to do anything to get his dad to pay attention to him, to, to shower him with praise, to affirm him. Before Jesus does anything, he is affirmed. This is my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And the second thing is that God redeemed Jesus' family line through his baptism. God redeemed all of that story, the good, the bad, the ugly, the messy, all of it was redeemed in Jesus. And that's what we find as a huge part of the ministry of Jesus was to redeem Israel and through redeeming the story of Israel to redeem all of mankind. So I actually want to take those backwards. We're going to look at family line and what that speaks to us and then we're going to look at baptism as affirmation. So firstly, when we are baptized into the new family of Jesus, God begins to redeem our lineage, setting us free from unhealthy patterns inherited in our family of origin. And I've mentioned this before. It's a very difficult concept for us, but I think it is of tantamount importance that we understand. When you are baptized into the new family of God, which we call the church, that becomes the realest family that you have. Your biological family becomes secondary. And I've told this story before that when I'm, we'll share a bit more later, but when I realized that it was more true that my parents were my brother and sister in Christ than it was that they were my parents, it dramatically shifted how I understood our relationship, how I held it. Because our relationships here and now, this side of the grave and the resurrection, are temporary. It's set up to help us to grow, but it's something that in the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, all of that becomes redundant because we've been made the new family of God through Jesus. We find this even later on in Jesus' ministry. For an example, in Matthew 10, Jesus speaks about how the heavenly family is now the first family. And he's sending out the disciples for the very first time on mission. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword because I'm going to bring a father against son and a mother against daughter-in-law and brother against brother. And there's going to be all of this challenge within your family of origin because you're remaining faithful to me. And the sooner that you accept that and acknowledge it, you're going to see what's going to happen. There's another point in the story of Jesus where he's teaching. And some people come and they say, your, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. You know, he's kind of, he's at home. And we can kind of fill in the blanks that mom's getting a little bit nervous. Jesus is kind of sticking his neck out there. He's saying some very controversial things. And it's very likely that his family of origin are trying to get him to quiet down and behave. And his response to them is fascinating. He says, who is my mother? And who are my brothers and my sisters? And then he points to all the people that are listening. He says, these are my mother and my brother and my sisters. So for Jesus, his heavenly family is the, is the true family. And the biological family comes second. And that's true for you and I. The second thing that we understand, especially for those of us who are Gentiles, is that we have been adopted into the family of God. And this is the language that we find in the letters that Paul writes. In Romans 8, for example, he says, Now you are no longer slaves, but sons. That whether or not you are part of the original family of God um, in the Jewish line, or you are a Gentile, a pagan, which is probably most of us, pagans, woo, you have been adopted in, you've been grafted in, he says elsewhere. So you're no longer slaves 
to your family of origin, to your culture of origin, to any of that stuff, you are now fully adopted in as sons and daughters of the living God. And it is incre- this is not just some sort of abstract, interesting theological point. Because if we can get that right, it dramatically shifts all of our understandings of who we're called to be and what exactly it is that God is going to do in our lives. Because the reality is that you are naturally a product of both nature and nurture. How many of you are in education? A couple of you. So this is an ongoing debate. You know, my background is in education. This is kind of an ongoing debate. Are we the way we are because of our nature, because of our genetic DNA, or are we the way we are because of nurture, because of the way that we were raised by parents and then our extended family, by our churches, by our schools, whatever it is. And where we continually come is it's a little bit of both. You are a little bit nature and a little bit nurture. And it's not as cut and dry as it might be of like 50-50 is your DNA and then how you've been raised. But there's some kind of mix of those things that makes you who you are today. And your personality then is what you as a little person formed as a solution to getting what you most needed in life, which is love. Your personality, everything about who you are as a, in your personality, the way you think, feel, act, is a result of trying to find a thing that at some point you recognize didn't come just naturally and automatically to you. Love, safety, affirmation, protection, success. Whatever it was, whatever you, whatever you interpreted as a really little kid, this is what it means to be a human being. Your personality began to accommodate for that so that you could find the love that you so desperately need. And we even think that your personality is partly hardwired into who you are. That's why a lot of times children in the same family of origin have very different solutions for how to get love. How many of you have a sibling that's totally the opposite of you? I do too. Uh, my brother texted me this week. Uh, for those of you that know the Enneagram, he would be a three, which is what's called an achiever. Um, he is the regional director of communications for South Asia for International Justice Mission, which is a very big deal. And he said he watched the, the Taylor Swift documentary that's on Netflix, and he said, you want to know exactly what it's like inside of my head, go and watch that. And I was like, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> I've, no I've, I've known you for 34 years, I'll bank on that instead of T-Swift, but... <laughs> but same family of origin, we came up with these dramatically different solutions for how we're called to live. So. There's actually a lot of really interesting scientific research that's going into understanding this interplay between um, our, our nurture in our own lives and then our inheritance, especially through our DNA. It's called epigenetics, and it's a very recent development in genetics as we're kind of breaking open the genetic code, understanding how um, creatures are crafted. And they've been doing this research in rats. Look at this. Isn't that adorable? How many of you just run in for the doors? That is adorable to me. Why? Because it fits with the message. <laughs> and because I get that kind of reaction. So they've been doing these studies in rats, and especially with rat moms. And what, they, what they're looking at is the way in which rat moms nurture their baby rats. 
And so rat moms, typically what they do is they hold babies close and they, and they lick them a whole lot. That's how they show affection. And that's how it normally goes. And they've done these studies where they've had moms that are very affectionate. They lick their baby rats. They hold them close. And then rat moms that aren't particularly affectionate or don't do that. And they've kind of done some inhibitors. And what they've discovered is those babies grow up to have a certain disposition to life. The little rat babies who their moms lick them and caress them, they're very resilient to stress um, and anxiety. They are much calmer in life. They have longer lifespans. Um, whereas they find in the babies who grow up and their mothers didn't lick them and caress them, they are very prone to anxiety, they are very aggressive, and they have shorter lifespans. Okay? So there's your nurture bit. The way you were nurtured as a baby determines how you grow up and your ability to handle stress, your ability to be oriented to your surroundings, your social engagements, how aggressive or passive or assertive that you might be, all of this. But it doesn't stop there. They've actually recognized that even those babies, when they grow up and they have babies, those next babies are also being affected by the way that their grandmother was. And then the next generation after that, they're discovering that it's three to four generations are affected by how one rat mother was, was uh, treating her, her offspring. And so what epig the epigeneticists are in implying here is it doesn't change your DNA. So your DNA is a strand. Every single cell in your body has the exact same DNA, but they're programmed differently to make a skin cell versus a liver cell versus a hair cell or whatever it might be. But there are these, I'm going, this is, we're going wonky here, okay? But I love this stuff. There are these proteins that are wrapped around your DNA that act like switches that turn on and off the genetic makeup in your, in your genes to tell your body what kinds of cells to produce. And there's one kind of protein that opens up and releases information, and there's one kind of protein that shuts down. And what they've discovered is that mothers who are nurturing of their babies, that it opens up these proteins, and so it begins to release all of this genetic information that makes good, healthy, happy, resilient little rats. But the mothers that don't care for their babies and don't offer that affection, it tightens the DNA and it restricts the information that is released. And it actually alters their genetic makeup and it starts to pan out in three to four generations even beyond that original thing. And you wonder why you are the way you are. You know, we, we grow up believing that we are completely responsible for our own behavior that we are responsible for how we think and act and feel. And it's not entirely true that each one of you have been given an inheritance at the genetic level because of the way that your great-grandparents were that has affected the way that you live today. That attitudes, patterns, we see this consistently, patterns of divorce and abuse and so on, these things become written into who we are. And it's fascinating that just now, in the past 20 years, in genetics, we're discovering this pattern where something can be affecting out to the third and fourth generation. Because when we go back into the Old Testament, written some 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, in the Ten Commandments, we find in the second commandment, where God is, is, is calling out Israel for adultery and saying, you need to come to me, you need to follow me and trust me. He says this, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. Now maybe you see that word punish and it kind of puts you on edge. Well, a lot of what the rabbi suggests is the word punishment actually can better be translated as consequences or something having a tendency to be repeated. 
And so when we look, if you can put that, that verse back up there, we can read it like this, that I am the Lord your God, and that there's going to be a tendency of repetition. There are going to be consequences for the children, for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generations. So the way in which your great-grandparents chose to be in the world is affecting to the third and fourth generation. So what 21st century epigeneticists are discovering has been in Hebrew wisdom for 3,000 years. Let's talk about the veracity of Scripture. But he goes on to say, but I will show love to a thousand generations who love me and keep my commands. And so that we find as we continually give ourselves over to the new family of God to receive the journey of healing that's there, not only are we being healed, but we are literally doing something to our DNA that sets up the next generation for success. So it is, not only is your healing for you right now, but your healing is for the next generation and the next generation and the generation after that. And this is why what we call generational curses. You ever bump up against those things in your life and you've done the work and you've done talk therapy and you've been in all these Bible studies and it doesn't seem to shift. You can't seem to break it. Because what if that thing has nothing to do with what you're doing and has everything to do with your family of origin, with your great-grandparents, your grandparents, and your parents? And if we believe that we are integrated creatures, mind, body, soul, spirit, then the healing that God wants to bring is going to be in all of those arenas. And so we need to take seriously the recognition that there are generational curses for all of us, things that were laid down before we even entered into this world that God wants to break. And there are spiritual solutions for spiritual ailments, and there are physical solutions for physical ailments, and there are mental solutions for mental ailments. And God wants this cohesive, holistic approach to bringing us healing in those things. Because this is the truth, friends. When we we remain immature when we aren't aware of how our earthly inheritance is holding us back from living like Jesus. Or as one of my favorite teachers says to Suzanne Stabile, what got you here won't get you there. We remain immature. We remain stuck when we have a chosen ignorance of how our earthly inheritance, all this stuff that came before us, is holding us back from living like Jesus. So about a decade ago, I was, uh, maybe more actually now, gosh, how old am I? 36 this week? Uh, let's say 12 years ago. I was at home uh, visiting my parents. Um, we have, they lived in a two-level house. Their bedrooms are stairs. I slept in the basement. Um, and I was down there making some noise or something. And my mom suffers with fibromyalgia, so sleeping is very, very difficult for her anyway. She needs eight hours uninterrupted or like every nerve in her body is burning. And I was down there making too much noise and she came to the top of the stairs and she yelled at me to cut it out because she's trying to sleep. And I became 12 years old. How many of you, that's like when you're with your parents, that's what happens. You, we call it reversion. You revert. You're like, whoop. And I went, to, I went to 12 years old and I felt like a bad boy. You know, you know that feeling when you feel like a bad boy, you feel like a bad girl. And I went back to bed and I'm lying in my bed and I'm like, all right, Lord, what is this? Like, why is, I'm, I'm 25 years old, but I, I revert back to being 12 whenever my mom yells at me. What is going on there? And the Lord gave me a vision. This does not happen to me often. This is not a regular occurrence. 
But the Lord gave me a vision of both of my parents and their sides. So my father, uh, many of you have met him. He's very kind. He's a very merciful person. He's very calm and even keeled. And he grew up in a household with an alcoholic father. And he's, he's in the middle of five kids. And he told me that a lot of times growing up, they didn't know if it was going to be goofy drunk dad that was coming home or angry drunk dad. So everybody's just kind of on edge waiting for dad to come home to see what's about to happen. And if it was angry drunk dad, he would kind of start to, to you know, lash out at the kids and at my grandmother. And my dad, as the middle child, would oftentimes literally get in the way to protect the two younger siblings from, the dad to, from their dad, to distract him or whatever it might be. And by the grace of God, my, my grandfather was set free from alcoholism and he really turned around his life later on, but it was after the kids were already out of the house. And I thought about that. I thought about the interaction of my parents and seeing like, as, as much as my dad is a very merciful person, he learned from a young age in his own direct engagements with his father, but also observing the patterns in his mom, that you just kind of absorb abuse and you absorb anger and you just kind of absorb it and that's how you survive. Is that anybody else's story in here, right? So the Lord shows me this vision of my father and then my father's father and my father's mother and and all of that interaction. And then he shows me on my mother's side the way that my mom grew up. And my grandfather on my mom's side, he was the guy that if he didn't know how to do it, he knew the guy who'd be able to do it. And he always had the answers for everybody else, right? He, he was always there. He was a very helpful person. He'd, he'd do, go out of his way to do whatever you needed for him, but he couldn't ask for help. He, very, he kind of prided himself on being the one that has the answer, having the provision, being always right. And I kind of recognize that as much as I love my mom. And if she was here, she'd be very quick to recognize that she's inherited that as well. And so it made an interesting dynamic in their household, even though it wasn't abusive or neglectful, it was a good household, there was still this pattern being laid down. And I found that fascinating. But then it went even farther. And this is the part where it kind of you know, all of this could just be me remembering storylines from my parents just telling me about their families. But the Lord actually gave me a vision of my great-grandfather, whom I never met. He was, he was dead long before I was born. He was a blacksmith. He had four sons. They grew up on this little farm, and he was hard, and he was mean, and he was distant from his sons. And he raised them on this farm to be strong, self-sufficient, but not necessarily emotionally in tune not able to be able to say those magic words, I need your help. And that was the the bit that turned to me to go, this is is the Lord speaking to me. And recognizing like every, every time that I'm in conflict, every time that I'm having this engagement with my my mom or my dad, or I'm I'm fighting with a, a friend or a loved one or whatever it might be, all of those people are present in that moment. And recognizing that on one in one side I have this ability to absorb unnatural amounts of, of you know, aggression um, while remaining relatively passive, and this other side of, like, being so convinced that I'm always right. <laughs> Some of you are laughing, maybe you've had coffee with me. And this battle is going on inside of me, and I had to start this moment of prayer over a decade ago, Lord, I, I don't want to live out of those patterns anymore. And it's so, it's so hard for us to be honest about our families of origin, isn't it? Because usually what happens is we either rush to defend and excuse 
the way that our parents were and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Or we rush to the other side and we demonize them and and all of our problems are because of where they came from. And maybe it's not your family of origin, maybe it's your church of origin. Maybe it's your school, your town that you grew up in. The way you are is all because of them and that's the problem. We just need to cut it off and just forget about it and it's over and it's done with. But it's recognizing how do we learn both honesty and honor that we are honest about our earthly inheritance, what has been written into our spiritual DNA in a way that we can come before the Lord and that we can invite healing. And if you remember at the very beginning of the year when we were speaking of vision, we use this passage from Philippians 3 and Paul has this line, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And Paul has just shared his story of where he was and then when he met Jesus, what happened in his life. And so when Paul says forgetting what is behind, he isn't meaning what a lot of us grew up with church in. Like, oh, the past is in the past. I don't have to go back there because of the cross and the new life. And I don't have to, I just can ignore my past as forgetting. And then everything's going to be great from here on out because I'm a son or a daughter of the living God and so on and so forth. And then we just keep bumping into the same problems and we wonder What's going on? Wasn't I set free? It's when we choose willful ignorance to our past, even in the name of Jesus, that we continue to find ourselves in those cycles. What Paul is talking about when he says forgetting what is behind, he's actually saying, take a careful account of where you've come from in your own story, but even in your family of origin. And open that journey up to the Lord to allow him to shine light to bring healing, and to bring forward movement. And the the mature Christians among us will tell you that the more that you walk with God, the more is going to be uncovered from your past that needs to be dealt with. The Christian journey is not one and done. It's not like I was this way and then I met Jesus and now I'm this way and everything's awesome and I've been winning for the past 40 years. The more that you walk with God, the more God begins to highlight these little things, these little moments, especially in your relationships with one another to say, hey, how about this? It's time. Let's deal with that thing in your life. Now let's deal with that thing. We call it sanctification. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit, yes, to make us holy, but not in the sense of it were to become pious for our own sakes or anything, but we actually look more like Jesus as God says, okay, now it's time to uproot that thing. And you know how that's always been in the background and we've had far bigger fish to fry. Okay, it's time. And I remember my spiritual father telling me years ago, he said, in this weird way, I hope that I never stop healing because I know there's so many layers to who I am and what I've experienced in life that it's become this intimate part of my relationship with God, not the thing that I have to get over in order to have relationship with him. And so we're going to take a moment for an exercise. When you came in, there was a a clipboard on your chair. Go ahead and pull that out. And we're just going to take a prayerful account of some of these things. On the front, you're going to be taking an account of the life messages that you received from your father and your mother. If you didn't grow up with a biological father and mother, just add caretaker in, whomever that might be. Because you got different messages from different sides. Um, But then also write down, what were general messages that you received from your family of origin? And then finally, were there any major earthquake events in your life? Uh, A divorce, 
a sudden death for us, immigration, these big moments that maybe haven't necessarily been truly engaged with the journey on the Lord. And if you flip that paper over, you're going to find um, something that I've borrowed from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is the unbiblical family commandments. And this is really, this is not exhaustive, but this might get you thinking through this, that there was things that you learned in your family of origin that maybe you've just taken for granted of, of course, this is the way the world is, um, but those things aren't actually true. For example, you owe your parents for all they've done for you. Maybe you grew up and said, do not marry a person of another race or culture. Maybe you were, came up in a, in a family where it's avoid conflict at all costs. Don't let people get mad at you. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a few minutes uh, just to work through this between you and the Lord. And again, take courage. He does not here to hurt you. He's here to set you free. And when you have that trajectory, you know this is where I'm going. It's going to give you the courage uh, to, to open up your story before the Lord. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to, I'm just going to give you some time to work through this. God, in the same way that you redeemed the family of Jesus, because in all of their shortcomings and all of their unfaithfulness and failure, they were part of the story of bringing about the Messiah. And so their lives were justified because through them, you still chose to work to bring healing and salvation to the world. And God, many of us, we need that for our own lives that our earthly inheritance, our family of origin, going back three or four generations, those things are in us. And they've gotten us to this point, but many of those things are holding us back. So Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you would descend upon your dear ones here. Give us a spirit of courage to look honestly at our families of origin, to root up the unbiblical truths the lies that we internalized of who you are, who we're called to be, or how life is supposed to work so that we might become more aware so we know where you're leading us. We know where you want to bring healing. Come Holy Spirit. Let's take a few minutes and just work through that.
give you about one more minute. invite you to stand with me. So the first being about how God at our bap- after our baptism begins this process of redeeming our lineage, our family of origin. Um, and I think it brings us to the, the second part of what we recognize in this story of Jesus' baptism. That our membership in the new family of Jesus means that before we do anything, we are loved and God is well pleased with us. You maybe had the best parents in the world, but on some level, you have still internalized this idea that love is something that you earn. It's something that you work hard at and love has many faces. Sometimes it's love as success. Sometimes it's love as safety. Sometimes it's love um, as emotional connection. Whatever it might be, you've internalized this idea that love does not come freely. It couldn't possibly come free. There has to be strings attached. So for many of us, the deepest thing that God wants to speak over you is that lost message that you did not hear when you were growing up. It is good that you exist. You are lovable. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are, I am already well pleased with you. You're already in. You don't have to earn anything from me. You don't have to perform for me. You don't have to hide from me. Just come and just sit at my table and sup with me. Let me speak over you how I see you. What is the good that God intends to do in your story? Each of us need to ask him for a vision of what freedom looks like. When we come to terms with all of this stuff that's inside of us to say, God, what does it look like to be free in that arena of my life? What does it look like to be free in relationship? What does it look like to be free in my self-image? And to recognize that God is already working in you in ways that you cannot yet see. And far from being the the thing that maybe if he does this, then you'll be accepted. That's what it means to be in the family of God. Is that he's doing something in you already. And so I've invited some of our leaders to be in the back. If you really feel like God is 
uh, stirring up something within you that you want to pray through, if you want generational curses to be broken, they're going to be back there ready and willing uh, to lay hands and pray for you. And for the rest of us, we're going to come forward to the table to allow God to speak over us. You are my son, you are my daughter, and you I am well pleased. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the person of Jesus, we have been adopted into a new family, a heavenly family, an eternal family, a family that is not guided by all of these temporary situations, a family that is not guided by fear, a family that is not guided by abuse or neglect, a family that is not guided by performance or achievement, a family where you see us and you say, this is my son, this is my daughter. God, as we come forward to your table, would you speak over each of us the lost message, the thing that we so desperately needed to hear in our childhood to know that we are lovable. And God, I pray that as we take part of communion, the body and blood of Jesus, that you would be reminding us of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. That his dying for our sins, it means all this stuff too. And that every time we come to your table, Lord, it plants us a little bit more firmly in your new family. So bless us, Lord, as we bless you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all come to the table and people are available in the back for you to receive prayer. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.